Episode 2 of my podcast series. The topic today will be animal cognition. This is a really fun one because I personally think that chimps could be more intelligent than humans. So, right away, that is probably sounding pretty crazy, but if you stick with me, I can actually make a pretty solid case for this. Um, to start, we could talk about intelligence. Intelligence, we should look at in a much more nuanced um, perspective, because I think right now... One of the major problems with this question about animal intelligence involves assessing human intelligence as being the dogmatic top of the hierarchy. And the reason I think this occurs is pretty obvious. We have the most technological advancement out of any species out there. But if you actually question this, is it truly intelligence that leads to technological advancement? Sure, you must have intelligence to reach some kind of technological peak that that humans basically have reached. But I would uh, assert that it is much more than just intelligence and that we don't really... Uh, consider all the other things at play in technological advancement because um, I think it's just because we don't really think about it in a very nuanced way. So, for example, we can start with creativity, which I think is not relevant towards um intelligence, but I do think intelligence would definitely facilitate any kind of creative achievements, obviously. So to start, creativity is, in my eyes, a product of risk-taking. To explore this, we will look at... Hold on. Creativity is the product of risk-taking. When you look at the different experiences that you can experience throughout life, you can basically categorize everything into familiar or unfamiliar. When you look at familiar, you cannot make discoveries, essentially, because it is defined as the already discovered zones of reality. But when you look at the novel, 
there is plenty of room for discoveries because essentially every experience that is novel is a form of discovery. When you look at the traits of familiarity, for example, you already know that uh, whether or not an experience is safe to engage with or unsafe to engage with. So you essentially already know what is safe with the familiar and I think our evolutionary path has led us to cling to safety as opposed to discovery. I think discovery plays an essential role, though, in our species. The reason that the unfamiliar is uh, risky is because you have not yet determined whether or not things are safe or unsafe. When you explore the unknown, you are risking potentially death or the possibility of making mistakes that are harmful in general. Um, I believe disorders such as ADHD, schizophrenia, and bipolar disorder are uh, genetically linked and predisposed to explore the realms of discovery, and I think this is the basis for why these disorders have correlations with creativity. They also correlate to a very uh, similar mechanism uh, with D2 receptors, D2 dopamine receptors, and D4 dopamine receptors which form connections known as heteromers, which basically means that when one fires, the other one can be affected. And both of these receptors share a similar mechanism in that they both uh, suppress stimulation and suppress dopamine activity. I, uh, in another podcast, I will explore this in more depth, but... For now, I will leave that part there. There are definitely reasons, I think, that these um, would these receptors would facilitate creativity. And I think it is because the stimulatory nature of dopamine typically would favor repetitious and habitual and essentially Pavlovian um, behavior. So, they will typically uh, have a creature chasing uh, sexual pleasure or food or other things that I think are already known. And, for example, there is um, a D1 receptor that is stimulatory, and this one connects to systems involved with memory, which I think is the basis for Pavlovian learning, where a memory or a perceptual experience can trigger and basically an automated response by your body. Moving back to creativity, I would posit that 
in our society creativity is essentially stigmatized and that is because it is so dangerous it is dangerous because we have to learn from our mistakes when we're trekking through the unknown when we trek through we would uh, inevitably encounter many situations where we are wrong about our predictions and hypotheses and if our society facilitated mostly creative thinking that would possibly lead to catastrophe this is why we have movies and shows such as black mirror that are fear-mongering about the potential risks of creative and technological advancement this, I think, plays an essential role. There is a dynamic between um, the fear-monger and the creative radicalist. And so I think creativity is essentially vitally important towards um, all of the things that humanity has come to, and I do not think this is based on um, intelligence. I think that the fact that we have no predators allows us to take risks beyond other animals, and this is what facilitates the um, technological advancements. So next, we can look at another species that has achieved agriculture, which is the ants. I think that ants have another critical trait similar to humans that is not intelligence, that is critical for the development of societies. The trait is networking of our sociology, essentially. Ants have developed a hive mind, which allows them to uh, create things like agriculture, which chimps have not achieved, but no one would argue that ants are more intelligent than chimps. Now, I do realize that ants are very evolutionarily removed from humans and chimps, so bringing them up might seem arbitrary, but I think that it is not because convergent evolution happens all the time. So I think that networking creates a new environment that gives advantages that probably go very far beyond what is possible with intelligence. Another thing I would like to clarify is that in the past, I've had some people claim to me that intelligence is, um, well, basically, they just sent me the definition that's on search engines, which says, the ability to acquire and apply knowledge and skills. The problem I have with this definition is that it basically includes things like dexterity, which I would argue is definitely not a part of intelligence because how could that be and i think if you uh look at what intelligence is in a more nuanced way rather than taking these kind of definitions 
Uh, and I, I would even say that we don't have an effectively good definition for what intelligence is, but I think we could say that it's uh, based on your ability to use your mind to solve problems and to acquire information and understand information. But I would also say that I don't think that um, language should be a part of this because I do not think humans developed language based on their intellect. I think it's an evolutionary adaption that is inevitable with social networking. And I think it's the same case as the ants, but also I think dolphins share this trait and even chimps, and it is definitely a trait that uh, works on a scale of sorts. So the next part I will discuss is domestication. So when we look at chimps, they actually surpass human uh, metrics of cognition in terms of executive functioning. Uh, if you don't know what this is, basically, executive functioning deals with how we operate our brain in a controlled way. It involves impulse control, uh, planning, strategizing, and also juggling multiple uh, uh, variables in your mind to calculate different things. So the higher executive functioning, you'd be able to juggle more information at once to process. And with chimps, they have been shown to surpass humans' ability of working memory, which is an aspect of executive functioning. The reason for this, I would say, is due to an effect of domestication in the humans is leading to decreased cognition compared to the chimps, which would be a less domesticated species. When we look at dogs versus wolves, this is another case where a similar pattern is noticed. With dogs, they uh, perform worse than wolves and um, on the same type of tasks as well. And the interesting thing is that humans and dogs both surpass uh, wolves and chimps on another test, which is the pointing test, which is obviously a socially demanding metric of cognition. And something interesting is that domesticated animals have a difference in adrenal receptor functionality, or just adrenal activity in general. And even within humans, those who have lower adrenal activity tend to have cognitive problems with exactly the same uh, cognitive metric, which is executive functioning. And those with unimpaired adrenal functioning have uh, functional, functionally normal uh, executive functioning. So this, this effect with adrenals and domestication has occurred with basically every species that we have domesticated, from chickens to foxes to dogs 
and it produces physiological consequences as well, such as a smaller palate, essentially a shortened snout for dogs and wolves, for example, and floppy ears, and it's associated with many physiological traits. When we domesticate an animal, we are essentially choosing to get animals that are less aggressive and more sociable. So this is where we switch to the next topic, which is the dynamic between parent and child throughout the animal kingdom. In the animal kingdom, the parent and child dynamic is essentially that the child creatures explore their environment, they are curious, they are somewhat hyperactive, playful, and probably more creative than adults, adult creatures. As they age, they become a little bit more hardened and essentially more defensive, aggressive, paranoid, distrustful, and other traits associated with uh, like a wolf versus a puppy, for example. And the reason this dynamic exists is because the child is allowed to make progressive, uh, uh, or is allowed to engage in progressive and playful behavior and explore because it has a guardian. It has the parent to protect it from doing risky activities and the parent grows defensive because it protects the child and they also have no guardian to protect them. I think that domestication essentially chooses this childlike trait and extends it beyond childhood. And this makes sense because humans have the longest childhood phase of all animals. And there's a lot of theory that goes into that as well. I won't get into all of that, but if you are curious, I highly suggest researching this topic. So, my hypothesis is that as you increase domestication, you essentially create a different dynamic. I think that the uh, hyper-domesticated creatures will become somewhat hive-minded. I think that the reason for this is that it is based on... domestication is based on submission and dominance. With submission, we would expect the child to be submissive to the adult, essentially, whereas the adult is obviously the dominant creature. And I think that as creatures age and become adults, that their dominantness is what prevents a sociable environment that uh, essentially holds back any kind of progress to a society and also language. It has been theorized that the basis of language has to do with auto-domestication in humans, which is a theory that we have self-domesticated by choosing the least aggressive and least and most social traits out of our sexual selection. 
Now, this is a bit of a crazy uh, hypothesis, but perhaps we actually have been domesticated in a less ethical way, a less uh, um, self-chosen way. What if the reason for uh, kingdoms in the past to not mix their bloodline with the uh, peasants and such was actually because they might have been domesticating the peasants to create obedient servants and a huge population of people who will not question the authority and also help progress society by being workers and complacent workers at that. Now, I don't necessarily believe this, but I think it is possible and worth investigating whether or not they were actually domesticating, and maybe they weren't just dogmatically not mixing bloodlines, but they could have had an intention, and maybe it was inspired by the fact that we could breed dogs and wolves, which I do think would have been happening around the same time. There is also links between albinism and domestication, which kind of uh, brings up another question is what if white people are hyper-domesticated? Now, I don't want to get too much into that, and I don't think that we should uh, pit value judgments on whether domestication is good or bad, but it could be an interesting thing to explore. Now, so back to this question of animal cognition, there is also, uh, there are some theories that the uh, mental disorder schizophrenia is the product of hyperdomestication. There is correlations that uh, uh, schizophrenics with uh, increasingly smaller palates will um, have more severe symptoms. And the reason that it could be that domestication would increase symptoms is imagine that you're becoming increasingly submissive. Now, I'm not suggesting that schizophrenics would be complacent people at all. I think it is actually probably the opposite, but it is because they are submissive that they would develop an opposition to complacency. And I think that is because they uh, imagine that you are the most submissive person around and you walk into a room full of people who are more dominant than you. This would probably feel pretty uncomfortable. Now just imagine it within your life right now. Imagine that everyone else has suddenly become more dominating. You walk into the room and everyone is bragging about their uh, superiority. They are aggressively dominating each other and also laughing about it. And you can't see how they could be laughing about it. Maybe it comes off as incredibly sociopathic. It could come off as pretty scary in general. And I think that the schizophrenic's tendency towards paranoia has to do with this. And I think, for example, like grandiosity could be that, uh, going back to the topic of creativity, that 
when someone comes up with a creative idea, they are uh, there's a natural inclination for society to reject these riskier ideas and use authority to kind of uh, maintain um, a fear of being wrong, essentially. Like, in our school systems, they do not let you learn from mistakes. They actually fail you for your mistakes. So when you do poorly on homework assignments and uh, other things, you are expected to know the answers and accept them dogmatically. I think that the schizophrenic will have a different perspective on this and grow um, impatient, I suppose, with all of the people that are clinging to these like norms of society and these um, appeals to authority that exists within our education systems. So I think that when they become grandiose or narcissistic, it is essentially because they are getting pit down a lot for their creative and more risky ideas that are unproven, hypothetical, theoretical, and it uh, continues until the point that they begin to distrust criticism, which is very much not a good thing. Because once you start to fear criticism or oppose it, you are not going to be able to learn how to critically analyze your position as much. Another problem is that uh, when people are told they are wrong constantly, but without any clear explanation for why, it may actually incentivize them to... Uh, claim that their idea is more right than it actually is, they may use that as a persuasive tactic, telling others that they are certain of the trueness of their idea, and that can become a habit. And I think that the schizophrenic tendency would be to learn on their own through creative uh, methods, like a child would, through exploration. And it is no different than when a parent tells a child not to go exploring because it is dangerous, and the child thinks the parent is stupid and doesn't want to listen, and rebels. The next assertion I would like to make is that uh, humans are not the most logical creature. And the reason for this is not that I necessarily have evidence of the logic of other creatures, but more so a criticism of the assumption that humans would be any more or less logical than other creatures, and the fact that there are many creatures, and the probability of the humans being the most logical is essentially one out of all those species. It, logic is not necessary for technology, it is not necessary for language development, it is not necessary for most of what humans do. But what is interesting is thinking illogically may actually be something that humans would benefit from. So, logic would definitely help us analyze the world around us, and I think this is something that all creatures would share. But I think that 
once you bring socialization into the uh, equation, you uh, would actually see a preference for illogical thinking, or maybe not even illogical thinking, but illogical speaking. And I think that the reason for this is because uh, if you disagree with someone, or let's say there is, um, you ate food that, and you did so, say you are living in some tribe, and you consumed some of the food supply, but you are attempting to hide this, and it's a time of famine. If you eat the food, you can um, be self-aware that other people did or did not observe it. You can try to observe and see if anyone observed you. And then you can, if no one has, you can conceal this information, which benefits your survival. And when you are questioned whether or not you ate yet, you can lie, which is also a social advantage, but I think that other people may just claim that you're lying. So once you reach this point, illogical thinking can actually benefit you. If you can say something in a fallacious way that convinces the other that you did not eat by rationalizing things and creating more lies, you sound more effectively honest. And, of course, now we uh, are very weary of this kind of thing in our society, and we try to advocate against it, but I think that we should look at the situation not as humans finding a way to be more logical through philosophy and mathematics or whatever else may aid in logical um, realization. And I think it is more that we have um, developed a lot of fallacious thinking and we are trying to stop the spread of this very unethical method of socializing. So I think that an animal that does not have the ability to socialize would actually in fact be more logical. And I think that is because there is no reason or incentive to be fallacious. And I don't think there's any evolutionary benefit to evolving fallacious thinking. And I don't think that logic is in, or I don't think fallacious logic is inherently the baseline. I don't think that a creature starts off crazy illogical and builds its way up to some kind of logical uh, system. I think the best way to look at that is that computers did not start off illogical. They are bound by extreme logic. They are stuck and non-creative at the beginning, and we would have to program them to be fallacious. Now, I'm not suggesting that um, these semantic type errors that probably existed and that still exist in computers are, uh, this is not what I'm talking about, but more that, because I think that has more to do with the humans programming the computers and using their fallacious thinking without realizing it. But 
computers themselves are stuck as basically logical. And I think the most simple organisms will also be stuck as basically logical. To show you the connection between uh, fallacious thinking and domestication, I will show you a thought experiment. Imagine that you and I go to a bar together and we both agree that this experience is amazing. Now, we are in agreement essentially, correct? Well, not so fast. I would actually say that um, I enjoy the music, let's say, but I disliked the food, but overall it was pretty awesome. Now, let's say that for your case, you actually disliked the music and enjoyed the food, and overall your experience was quite awesome as well. Now, we are essentially agreeing on diametric opposites here. Now, you can see how this kind of uh, false agreement would actually benefit our bonding. And I think that for socialization to really escalate and for societies to form, we need to actually be a little bit less logical and less precise so that we could agree more often and actually be willing to collaborate together. It is not disagreement that would help us collaborate, we would just endlessly fight. And I would say that this is the state that many non-social animals are left with. I do not think they lack empathy for each other either. I think that they just can't reach the same level of empathy because they uh, can't trick each other into believing that uh, they are in agreement. And I think this trait is essentially the agreeableness factor of the Big Five personality assessment. And so, moving on to domestication and why society would evolve from this trait. I think that as you become more submissive and more agreeable, that you will eventually be able to um, form societies. And this is because instead of assigning a parent figure as the dominant, you might actually assign a friend or group of friends as the dominant. And it gets more interesting as the government may have essentially taken the role of a parental figure in our psychology. This also extends to how religions might form, where God could be, in essence, the dominator. And I think that uh, as you increasingly become domesticated, that a different form of thinking emerges. Humans can uh, rely on their libraries of knowledge instead of being actually intelligent themselves, and I think there is great confusion on the concept of being actually intelligent versus obeying intelligent people, and I think many are, are actually in the category of obeying intelligent people. In fact, I would say that even our greatest geniuses are doing simply that. I think it is very common that humans often make the mistake to take credit for the um, millions or 
most likely billions or even trillions of humans across millions of years of progress and assume that one genius creature utilizing all this information is in fact a genius, which they might be. I'm not going to say they aren't, and I think they are extremely valuable, but we should differentiate uh, the notion of intelligence from the notion of collectively collaborating with trillions of humans for millions of years straight to a climaxing point. And I think that when we compare a chimp and a human's cognition, that it is not a fair comparison because we have a sort of sociological intelligence that is far superior than the chimps, obviously. And I think that the chimp doesn't even have a capacity to accept information from society like this. I think that the chimp's inclination towards domination will be a barrier to ever being able to learn uh, the full amount that you could by being um, more open and more agreeable. In conclusion, we can see that the adrenal differences between and across species uh, show a correlation towards executive functioning and that it extends uh, not just within our own species but beyond to other species when compared with their domesticated counterparts and that domestication is critical for the development of our human society but it is not based on intelligence itself and that um, humans are essentially a kind of hybrid of chimp and ants where we've developed a society and networked our intelligence but we also have a much higher intelligence than ants obviously and this leads us to humans i think that is probably it for this podcast today um i hope you enjoyed it this is a very obscure topic. Most people would probably um, jump to disagree with it immediately, but I think that it is worth clarifying because of a lot of reasons. Um, I'm not really going to go into all of that right now, but I think it uh, changes how we should look at animals and I think we have a lot of biases to assume that the animals are dumb and we don't actually critically uh, observe ourselves. So for an example, we might look at a chimp or some other animal and judge its uh, inclination towards instant gratification. And I think that humans will jokingly talk about how they are addicted to um, a chip product or junk food in general and they think they are intelligent to acknowledge it but that they don't have to control it and then they might assume that a chimp for example has no awareness of any of this because it can't talk about it but I think that animals actually have a, an immense capacity to understand a lot of what is going around, going on around them. 
and I think that they um, can actually conclude a lot of intelligent and even philosophical things just based on the information they are given. But what I think about that is that each animal may come to a single deeply philosophical observation of reality and not be able to share it with each other, and they will not obviously have an in-depth uh, development of these kind of philosophies, not only because they have no incentive, but also because they uh, it would take a lot of effort to do something like that, whereas humans can share all their individual realizations together and save it permanently or semi-permanently in the form of books and computer uh, data. But I think that we should um, acknowledge that animals actually may reach some interesting ethical and philosophical point of views. Points of view, I don't know. But uh, thank you for watching. I hope this was a pretty interesting podcast. And if you'd like to see a lot of articles and links, it is in the blog that I've posted on this topic. It's at mad.science.blog. Um, thank you again. Um, I guess that's it. I'm going to leave you with this song today that is called Bios. It is a song that I've uh, used to symbolize a kind of beginning to my album, but also a beginning to this virtual universe that me and my friend were working on. It is supposed to sound very, um, kind of not so human, kind of a cold emotion as if it were the Big Bang. It's pretty cool. I hope you enjoy. Um, goodbye. Goodbye.